Mac Power Users, episode 475. Something smells funny. Hello, everyone. This is David Sparks, along with my pal, Stephen Hackett. How are you doing, Stephen? I'm doing well, David. I'm excited to do a feedback episode, one of the the, the mythical feedback episodes I've heard over the years, and now I get to be part of one. Yeah, yeah well, you know, we occasionally get a bunch of feedback piled up, and uh, I always felt like when we do our content shows or guest shows, nobody wants to hear about feedback. So we save sure. it. And we got it. And then it allows us to talk a little bit about stuff we're using, a little bit of news once in a while. And um, and this episode, actually, we do have a little bit of news to talk about. Because last week we were talking about the uh, iPad as a laptop replacement and went to great length talking about the merits of the iPad Pro versus the standard iPad. And then, of course, like the day after we released the episode, Apple adds some new iPads. <laughs> they were waiting for us. If we had done that episode two weeks ago, the iPads would have been out. Two weeks ago, right? Is that how that works? Yeah, I know. So so we're going to do a little <laughs> bit of newsy stuff. We're going to talk about the new iPads and iMacs uh, for this first segment. If you're not into that, uh, skip forward 10 or 15 minutes. You'll be fine. The rest of the episode sure. is feedback. But uh, let's talk about the iPad first. I, I thought that was the news of most interest to me. Uh, you know, the iMacs are great, and, and I'll tell you why it wasn't as exciting for me when we get there. But the iPad... Um, they've added a new class of iPad. We've got our old friend, the iPad Air, has returned. It, it has, but it's sort of been reborn, right? It's it's like the iPad Air we knew, but better. So yeah. it's got a 10.5-inch screen, like the old iPad Pro, actually. Yeah. The old case design, so it's got the rounded edges, and it has the bezels, and it has the Touch ID sensor and the home buttons. This is not a, a Face ID you know, flat edges iPad Pro. It's the the older case design that I think we're all really familiar with. Uh, but I think most interestingly to me is it picks up iPad Pencil support, but it also supports the smart keyboard, which uh, – and I'm really curious what you think about this because you use your iPad as your laptop replacement more than I do. When I think about the iPad Pro, I think what most people care about is the keyboard and the pencil and things like USB-C and Face ID. Like Those are nice to have. But I kind of feel like Apple's taken the best stuff from the Pro, or at least the most mainstream stuff from the Pro, and put it into a $499 iPad Air. And I I, I really like that. I'm curious what you think. I think it's great. Uh, I agree. I mean, the keyboard is such a game changer. I know it's not the best keyboard in the world, but it's just the case. And you open it up and you can type on it. And if you're somebody like me that does a lot of typing, it's super useful. The, uh, the pencil I'm more mixed on because I think the new pencil is so much better. It's really hard for sure. me to get over it. And I understand it that, you know, this is a curved side device and the Apple Pencil 2 is really custom designed around those new iPad Pros. But I, I, I do wish, though, that anybody that wants to get a pencil could get the new pencil and it would work with any iPad. But that, that that's those are really... Um, that's really a relatively small point because the big point is if you want to get work done with your iPad and you need a keyboard and a pencil now, you're getting in for $500 instead of the roughly $1,000 you're going to spend on an iPad Pro. So uh, I, I'm really happy for it. it I, I just think overall the iPad line is in great shape now. You know, we talked in that episode last week about how the low cost iPad is still a great iPad. Well, the iPad Air is better than that. I mean, I think for a lot of people, you can get by just fine with this iPad Air. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's got the, the A12 processor in it, so it's super fast. 
the 10.5 inch is really portable. I mean, I had a 10.5 inch iPad pro for a year and that size is really nice because it's not that much physically bigger than the 9.7. They're really pretty close. It's, it's a great, it's a great iPad. And I think for me, if someone were to ask, Hey, I want to explore using my iPad more. I don't want to buy another laptop. Honestly, unless you have something that really demands a larger screen or USB-C, and at this point, USB-C doesn't do that much more than Lightning, no. this is a really good choice, especially considering the price jump from this to the the entry-level Pro. No, I, I agree. I think this is the starting point, just mm-hmm. like the MacBook Air for so long was the starting point. And, and what I would say to someone is, let's wait until June. I feel like that there are things that are going to happen in June. And maybe that extra power in the iPad Pro will be worth it. But, um, you know, for most people, like I said, I I would say the majority of people, this iPad Air, you're not going to tell any difference between using the iPad Air with a keyboard or the iPad Pro. It's just Mm -hmm. it's just going to be just fine for the stuff most people do when they think of getting work done. And that that size increase uh, to 10.5, even though it's just, you know, is it about an inch? It makes a huge difference on the keyboard, in my opinion. It does. Uh, oh, yeah. A 10.5-inch keyboard case is usable, whereas you get less than 10, it gets pretty. your fingers get pretty tight. It does. I uh, just wrote an article just earlier today about the 9.7-inch iPad Pro, that first small one. And I still have one floating around, and boy, that keyboard is cramped. It, it really is. The... Um, the 105 is a is a great size and i think it's i think it's cool that it makes those features more accessible uh, but it's not the only new ipad the ipad mini is also well it never really went away but i mean let's it kind of went away it, it kind of <laughs> went away it is back with again the a12 processor so it's going to be really fast with that small retina display but it too supports the apple pencil and you know, this thing is like the size of a small notebook, you know, p- p- small paper notebook. The iPad mini is little. I could kind of get behind the idea of an iPad mini if you're looking for sort of like a digital sketch notebook type thing. The iPad mini seems like a pretty good choice now. Yeah, well, I, I think there's a lot of people that are iPad mini fans. Some people have like purses yeah. or, or bags that just hold an iPad mini and they couldn't hold anything bigger. And it gives them all the iOS power uh, and that small footprint. Um, one of my kids uh, still uses one and it's not even the most recent one before today. It's, it's ancient, but she loves it and it's perfect for her and she uses it all the time. So I think there's a lot of people out there that are big mini fans. I'm glad that they didn't give up on it. I was a little worried they would, but I mean, just, and, and and not to, um, to get on about this, but the, the, the old pencil looks even more ridiculous next to the iPad mini. than <laughs> It's know. as long as the mini is tall, right? Yes, it's, it is crazy. Sort of comical. But, but I think I'm really glad. I think I, think I would have been upset if it didn't have pencil support. And if getting pencil support means we've got to use the old pencil, then I guess that's what we have to use for now. But, the, um, but I, I, I'm really happy that it's out there. It's not for me, but for the people that are big iPad mini fans... Uh, you're good to go now. I wouldn't hold my breath that it's going to get as many updates as the other iPads. Mm-mm. But then again, who knows? Apple's always a changing company. But sure. you know, just getting back to the point, you know, contrast the iPad line to the MacBook line, where there's a, with the MacBook, there's a lot of confusion at different price points. There's not really a whole lot at the lower price range. Um, in the mid price range, there's too much. You know, it, it's it's kind of hard to figure out. I feel like the iPad has really got a solid 
line of products at just about any price you could expect to pay for something with an Apple logo on it. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's there's never been a better time uh, if you're looking for an iPad. So the, the iPad was not the only thing updated this week. Apple's iMac line got updated as well. There's all-in-one desktops. The, the headline here is that, especially at the high end, you just have more to-be-configured options. So like the base model iMac, so the 1099 iMac is not Retina. It is an entry-level machine. I want to come back to that computer and its storage in a second yeah. because I think this is something we should talk about. But the 4K Retina iMac got some some increases in CPU and GPU options. And then the 27-inch, if you get the, the highest in, in and, and spec it up, you can really get pretty close to an iMac Pro in terms of performance. Actually, in fact, in some scenarios, then it would actually be faster than a... Sure, like single core, if you're going to... Yes. Yeah, so... Yeah, that, that single-threaded application type workload, the, the iMac will be faster. The iMac Pro is still much better graphics and is a multi-threading monster. Yeah. But the iMac is like... It's really interesting, right? You can buy an iMac for 1200 bucks. that is like a great machine to put in someone's office or be a home computer with the kids, or you can spec it up and do audio and video production on it. It's really a really wide-ranging line, and these updates, I think, just further that that sort of direction with the iMac that you can you can spend you got to spend some money but you can really have something really powerful in a slim desktop. Yeah. I mean I, I agree but you know to me it's not that different. The the original I mean the last generation iMac was very similar. You could you could spec it up and it would be very close to a low end um iMac Pro. Um they had a lot of options at the higher end to really make it a machine that can work for you. Um, at the lower end, I guess let's talk about the lower end for a minute. The you know they the big kind of stain on it was they still have spinning disk drives, and mm-hmm. they uh, they don't have you know they once we saw the iMac Pro and you said oh you could take something with the exact same case design but make a better internal computer that's thermally way more friendly and um, just has got some some really nice benefits. I was really kind of hoping that the next iMac would would have be more like an iMac Pro on the inside, but with just cheaper components. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like the T2 chip, which is in the i, which is in the Mac Mini, is not in the iMac, which is kind right. Of, it just, I know it's, I know there's reasons for that. The spinning discs is one of the reasons, but it's just mm-hmm. weird to me that you'd buy an iMac. Let's say you bought a four thousand dollar iMac, you spec it up, but you don't have the T2 chip. You know, it's just kind of weird. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's it's weird, and I think that's. Because this wide range they have to hit, right? Yeah. That they need to have a machine that's $1,100. So that's going to have a spinning drive. I understand that. At the very least, what I wish they had done was make these bottom two models. So the non-retina and then the entry-level retina 4K, which is $1,299. Both of those, by default, come with a one terabyte hard drive. And you may think, well, most people will just go in there and click Fusion Drive. I don't think that's true. No. And I think if you walk into an Apple store and buy an iMac... They just have these stock configurations, and so they don't do a lot of like custom machines in stock at the Apple Store normally. And that means you can buy a twelve hundred dollar, thirteen hundred dollar iMac for four K Retina display. And like I've used these machines, uh, I've got people I know with a machine just like this, and that hard drive is brutally slow. It's fifty four hundred RPM. It, you get beach balls and. If you're going to buy a 21-inch iMac, I would definitely spring for the Fusion Drive or all SSD if you can. But just 
that spinning hard drive, the performance is a real big hit, and that's that's pretty disappointing. Yeah, I I really I agree. I I just feel like at least a fusion drive mm-hmm. uh, in these devices, but yeah, you know, it is what it is. I, I I'm not super excited about the iMac. I feel like yeah, that's nice. It got a spec update. I'm glad that they've got the most current processors in it. Um, and I, I'm glad that it's continuing to get updates because for a while, Macs were not getting continual updates. Right. I'm not even really that upset that it's a two-year cycle, or at least this this round is. Um, I don't think it makes that much of a difference. Uh, but the uh, but I, I do wish because it you know let's let's assume it's another two-year cycle. That means in 2021 you can go into an Apple store and buy a an entry-level iMac that has a spinning drive instead of an SSD, and that's that's not good. No, it's 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 a bummer. Yeah, uh, I think one question people may have is where is the line between the iMac and the iMac Pro? I don't know where that's like actually kind of a complicated question. One factor to consider is your workload. So I, I before I bought my iMac Pro, I bought a loaded i7 5K iMac, not like whatever it was a year and, and three months ago. Yeah. And that 5K iMac under load, the fan would be pretty loud. Like it was definitely noticeable. And if that's not a big deal for you, that's great. But if you record podcast all day, it's a problem. And so for me, what kicked me into the iMac Pro territory was that it's effectively silent at all times. And I haven't spent time with these new iMacs, but I would imagine that that fan is going to be a little noisy at times. And so if that's a concern, that is something to consider. And my my sort of general thought here is, look, if you're specking an iMac to $4,000 or, you know, $4,200, like if you're in within $1,000 of the iMac Pro and you can swing it, the iMac Pro is a much nicer machine. Yeah. For, you get additional ports, a much better GPU. I kind of think you don't have to go real far before you tip over. Better thermals, better camera. Way better. I mean, like even some of the YouTube stuff I do, I have a fancy camera, but sometimes I just shoot them with the iMac Pro camera mm-hmm. because it's good enough for that. Whereas with a, yeah. with a standard iMac, it wouldn't be. I think once you get start getting in the ballpark, um, a uh, an iMac Pro, even though on the outside it looks the same, I mean, it's darker, but it's it looks the same. On the inside, it's very different and far superior in just about every way. So, uh, you know, once you get into that ballpark, then it, it may make sense. That's what I did, frankly, is I was specking up an iMac because I had the original Retina iMac and I decided last year um, to get a new one and I was specking up the iMac and then realized I was getting close enough to an iMac Pro that I just bought an iMac Pro, a low-end one, and I I do not regret that decision one bit. I mean, last week I was screencasting all week and I was getting builds out so much faster than I used to. I mean, it, it's just crazy. But it's 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 great. Yeah, but it just depends what you do too. I mean, you and I both do a lot of video, so there's a lot of people listening to the show that have no need at all. There's a lot of people listening to the show, you get the get the stock iMac Get a 27-inch stock iMac, bump up the storage to SSD if you can afford it, and a decent amount of RAM, and and you're good to go. Uh, So before we move on, there's something in this Google Doc that I cannot let go. (laughs) All this – I'm just going to – just for the listeners, all this bullet point says is dead possum story. (laughs) And I just can't – we have a lot to talk about, but we can't move on until you tell me what this means. Oh, man. I got in my daughter's car over the weekend. I'm like, something smells funny. 
and I'm not sure what it is, you know? And I, you know, I live kind of in the, Southern California is a weird place. I live kind of in the, where there's a lot of mountains and hills. I live at the base of some mountains. So I do a lot of hiking and, and mountain biking. So I've been, I've been chased by a skunk. I have uh, stumbled into mountain lion tracks, which I immediately ran away from. I've seen, mm-hmm. I've, I've bumped into multiple rattlesnakes, you know, so I, I have an experience with wildlife around here, but I'd never had the idea of dealing with um, the problem I had when I got my daughter's car <laughs> and, uh, uh, something smelled really funny. I pulled over, opened the hood, and there was a dead possum inside the hood oh. of the car. Oh, come on. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I was thinking, is it coincidence that this only happened to me after I got a podcast pan- uh, partner in Tennessee? I don't know. Is it? Hey, this is a don't. <laughs> I will not take any blame for this, sir. <laughs> I am innocent. Well, anyway. That was my weekend, man. I don't know what to say. That's horrific in every way. It I is. think we should just move on. I don't want to talk. About, this is creepy. I don't talk about this anymore. <laughs> I felt bad for him. He crawled up there. He probably was cold. You know? oh. oh, boy. Poor guy. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to us by OmniGraffle from the Omni Group. OmniGraffle is the graphics application that I use nearly every day. It's just such a great app for those of us that don't want to make a living making graphics. OmniGraffle is super easy to use. All you got to do is open the app up. They've got some simple tutorials to get you started, but it's also super powerful. Uh, for years, I've been making trial graphics and even all the graphics in the Max Sparky Field Guides. All of that stuff is made with OmniGraffle. And I always fool people when they see the graphics, they think I've hired somebody to do it. But that's not true. I just use OmniGraffle. It does a lot of the you know, it has a lot of the taste for me, if that makes sense. They've got built-in shapes in the application. You just drag them in. They look beautiful. You can shade them. They've got color palettes right in the application. So you can pick a color palette that's got maybe 10 or 12 different colors, and you can just choose from those, and they all look good together. And then they've got all of these different shapes. Uh, you know, people can donate them. So no matter what you're going to do, whether you're building an app or just making a cool chart and you want little graphics of people, they've got something for you to build those graphics. I also love the way when you pull it on to the page on the canvas, as they call it, everything just lines up automatically. And the Omni Group, I think, was one of the very first companies to come up with that idea. And it's just it just looks amazing. It takes almost no time. They've got an application both for the Mac and the iPad. Uh, one of the funny things I do is when I'm talking to clients and it's a complex relationship, sometimes it's contracts, sometimes it's people. Um, I will often put together an Omni Graffle with my iPad while we're talking because it's really just drag and drop. And then when we finish the meeting, I just send them the image and say, hey, this is my understanding of the relationship between the people or the documents. And we immediately can make sure we're on the right page, but also they're super impressed with me. They're like, how did you do that? You know, and it's, it's all using OmniGraffle. And the, and the sad thing is only my clients are using PCs. So those suckers, they don't get access to OmniGraffle. So too bad for them. Um, but it doesn't matter. You can share, you export it as a PDF and they've got it all going. Uh, just recently they've added some nice features to OmniGraffle. Uh, and one of them is flowing text inside of a shape. So if you put one of those cool shapes on the screen, you can put text in it. Well, automatically flow around the edges or inside the edges of that shape. It's a really powerful feature. 
So just head over to the Omni Group, check out Omni Graffle. They've got a free download trial if you want to give it a shot and just find out for yourself how easy it is to use. Uh, spend a little time with this application and you can totally up your graphics game. I, I think this would be useful for anybody that is in the business of presenting ideas, whether you're a student. Um, I, I use it as a lawyer. I also use it as a podcaster in the ad packet that goes out for Mac Power users. I've got Omni Graffle graphics in there. So no matter what you're doing, I think you could probably find a use to use this to make some impressive graphics. And because you can do it on your own and with very little time, you're going to find you do it a lot more often than you think you would. So uh, thank you, Omni Group, for sponsoring the Mac Power users. Head over to theomnigroup.com and check out Omni Gravel today. All right. So we have a bunch of feedback we're going to go through this week, uh, which I'm excited. It's my first feedback show. So I feel like I should I should get some sort of badge or yeah, pin. I was just thinking that, oh, man, this is it. You definitely, you're going to get your feedback badge. I'm going to mail it to you. But it's, it's, it is not iron-on. You have to sew it on. We don't do any of this iron-on <laughs> stuff on Mac Power Users. I can, I can do some simple sewing. You might be surprised with what I could, what I yeah. could pull off. I mean, I know you, you're a guy that has some tattoos, so I can't imagine you wouldn't be afraid of sewing some badges on your Mac, Mac Power Users vest. Yeah. No, you get stuck a little bit. It's fine. You know, I just, you know what? We, that's what we need is we need a Mac Power Users vest, like an mm. official one that you can get. And it's got like the battery on the upper left corner. And then you get badges as you perform certain acts. Like a just... motorcycle gang? Oh, man. Yes. Of course. Just like that. <laughs> oh, denim, maybe. Let's go denim. All right. Oh, stop. <laughs> All right. So we're going to start with the, the Mac Mini and specifically like external storage. This has been uh, a wide ranging discussion in the forums and on Twitter and various places of you know, if you have a lot of data and you don't want to spring for one of those big, expensive and internal SSDs on the Mac Mini, yeah, you can totally get by with something like an external SSD. Or we talked about Drobo or Synology. And one thing we didn't touch on in that episode that I think we should now is using RAID. And so RAID is a technology that you can put multiple drives together and treat them in a couple of different ways. So you could say, okay, I have two drives. And I want them to be effectively mirrored. So every cop, every file on drive A automatically is on drive B. So if drive A kicks the bucket, all your stuff is secure on drive B. And then you have something like striping where drive A and B act as one big volume. And what you get is faster read and write speeds because it's basically like writing your one you know, image file to kind of split across both drives. But then there's redundancy concerns there, right? So you can go to something like RAID 5 or RAID 10, which is like a blend of these different things. You can go on and on, like way down the rabbit hole with RAID. And one reason I at least kind of didn't bring it up is that a lot of people, if they think about a RAID, okay, I'm just going to buy two, you know, external SSDs, and I could RAID them together in software, which you can do in Disk Utility on the Mac. And in my experience, software raids can be a little fragile. So if one of those drives gets knocked off the system for some reason or gets, uh, you know, unmounted before being ejected or something like that, it could, it could lead to problems. Oh, only for the fearless. It's like raid I zero. I think so. Yeah. I, <laughs> I think so. And so you can do something like hardware raid. So like Mac sales and other companies have basically chassis that you slot your drives in and there's a hardware controller in there. So the Mac just sees one device and then that device manages, okay, this bit goes here, this bit goes there, and you can select RAID 015 or, or whatever you need. 
so they're good options if you want something that is sort of like a Drobo, where you've got multiple drives and you have some redundancy built in, where RAID is a little bit simpler to manage from a, like a, if this box dies perspective. Because one complaint, I think it's a valid complaint about the Drobos, is if the chassis uh, fails, it can be difficult to get the data off those. You can't just take one of those drives and like put it in a case on its own because they're sort of managed by the Drobo software. And if you're nervous about that, which is fine, a RAID situation, like it may be a better place for your data, but it's like another option to look at. But I think most people, I think for most people at least, like a big, fast external drive that, you know, you maybe you copy offsite every once in a while, or especially if you use Backblaze on, can get you the benefit of a RAID configuration without the overhead. I don't know. What do you think? I, I have totally changed my philosophy on this stuff. I used to have the Drobo on my desk. I loved it. It was great. Um, and I just got to the point now where the the laptop size drives have got so big and so cheap that I've got a couple of them Velcroed to the bottom of my desk. And one of them is a five terabyte drive. And everything that I need long term fits in five terabytes. And I've got, so I've got that one under there at all times. And then once a month I do a um, OmniFocus task uh, that uh, has me back up that on two separate drives that, that one of mm-hmm. them goes off site. And that's not as good in some ways because it's not constantly doing a secondary backup. Right. But it's just, it's just kind of easier, honestly. And, um, you know, and I, and of course I've also got that drive, since that drive is always attached to my Mac, it's going back to my Backblaze account at mm-hmm. all times. So it is going to the cloud as a backup, you know, immediately. And, you know, and there's, there's like redundancies built in, but, but on a basic level, I've kind of given up on RAID array and, and those kinds of more exotic backup or, sure. or data storage. Now, if I had to store 20 terabytes, I probably would just bite the bullet and get one of these units. There's some great ones out there. But because my the amount of data I have can fit on something I can buy off Amazon for $150, mm-hmm. that just seems to be the solution. And, and that, that is a change for me. If you go back a few years in the MPU archives, I used to be all in on, on those big boxes. Sure. So I, my situation has actually changed since we recorded the Mac Mini episode as well. I shared that I had the Mac Mini using a Drobo with basically a bunch of storage on it for work stuff and then a directory for like our iTunes library. Actually, since recording that show, that Drobo started to be a little unhappy with me. Sometimes I, w- I would go to mount it, and it would be inaccessible. I'd have to restart it, and I kind of got, I kind of got the fear in me, David. That's what happened. Yeah, sure. And and so I ended up picking up. Uh, I'll have it in the show notes. This is really cool. It's the OWC Mercury Elite Pro Mini, and it is a. USB 3.1 Gen 2 device. So this means that it is 10 gigabytes or 10 gigabits a second over USB-C. And I put an SSD in it. I basically did what you did and bought a big SSD. And then actually ended up having, actually have two of them now hanging off the iMac Pro. So I've adopted the David Sparks method of just have some drives hanging off your desktop all the time and sort of put the Drobo in into retirement. Uh, these cases are nice. I like the speed because I put SSDs in those cases. So it was like I want the most speed I can get out of them, and it it's so fast. It almost it almost feels like internal storage. It's just so quick to copy something back and forth, way faster than out over the network. You know, from the sh- from the studio back into the house, 
through the network switch, through the Mac Mini, to the Drobo, which is full of spinning hard drives. So I like the speed. Like you, I had to sort of say, you know, I'm willing to run a little bit of a riskier setup. So these drives are backed up via Backblaze, and I copy them to my offsite drives uh, every every three or four weeks. But for me, at least, these aren't active drives. Like one of them is literally named in Finder archives. Like things only yeah. go there when I'm done with them. And so the data set on them doesn't change very often. If you're running something like your photos library off one of these, I would be a little more religious about getting it backed up. But for something that's sort of cold storage, if you will, I think kind of where you and I are, like I'm acceptable with the level of, of belt and suspenders you and I have on. Yeah. And for me, because it's archival storage, I'm okay with the spinning drives, which are much cheaper than the SSDs. Mm-hmm. But I'm looking at my my uh, RAM, I'm sorry, my internal SSD on my iMac as I'm creeping up towards uh, filling it up, you know, and I just did a bunch of screencast projects and things. So I, I do put that stuff on the archive when it's done. But if I ever get to a point where my internal SSD isn't fast enough, isn't big enough for my, my operation files, mm-hmm. then I would definitely spend the money to get an SSD and a housing like this. This is more money than I'm than I'm spending because you're getting much faster speed. And mm-hmm. I think that the tipping point there is as soon as you start working off that drive as opposed to just dumping things there, sure. th- then you want to spend the extra money. I think that's a good assessment. What, what SSD did you put internally? I went with the – I was actually just looking at the Samsung Evo series. So it's a, it's a regular like two-and-a-half-inch drive. So it's not one of those like little MSATA yeah. or um, yeah. NVMe drives. The uh, 850 Evo. And there was a sale on them on Amazon Prime. If you keep an eye on these, sometimes they drop in price a pretty good amount on Amazon or other places. And so you can, if you if you don't need something immediately, uh, you can you can save some money. So like right now, as we're talking, this will be different by the time this is out. I'm sure the 500 gig one is a hundred dollars off. Like these go on sale on a pretty regular basis. Yeah, and from what I've talked to friends who who are in the SSD external business, Samsungs are probably the better ones to buy. I, I guess you should research that before you go out and buy one. But that, my understanding is Samsung is pretty good at, at that business. I've been really happy with mine. I ha- I've I've had one. My old Mac Mini had one in it. I mean, effectively forever, <laughs> and it it was totally fine. In fact, when I took that Mac Mini out of service, I pulled the SSD out of it and have it on the shelf if I ever need to put something in a machine somebody for somebody. So uh, I like them, but yeah, I've had good luck. I guess is what I'm saying. When I was in high school, I was doing a lot of music, and a friend of mine sold me a used Atari 512 ST, mm-hmm. 512K, right? And the, uh, but it had built-in MIDI ports, and it was great if you're working with a keyboard. I mean, like a piano keyboard. Sure. Uh, so I, uh, so I got it from him, and then me and another friend decided to turn it into a one meg machine. Ooh. One meg cooking with gas now. Oh, uh, you know the way you did it was crazy. You opened up the case. We bought the chips out of the back of a magazine because that's what you did back then. Mm-hmm. And we literally soldered them on top of the existing chips. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it was like surgery. And when we got all done, I fully expected the thing to go up in flames, and it worked. It was great. I had a, a keyboard computer for two or three years with the one meg, and met, met back then one meg was was killing it. Yeah. yeah. Serious serious computing business going on there. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) 
Uh, that's, that's good, Stephen. I, I, I like that. Um, so there's an SSD solution out there for me if I ever get to the point that I need to start using that as, as active uh, storage. We also had some feedback about uh, Synologies, which we touched on in that episode. And I, my stance on them it really hasn't changed since that show, including reading this feedback, uh, that it for most people, Synology is a little too much overhead. A, like, they're pretty expensive, although we had feedback from somebody who says they buy used chassis, which is uh, something you could do. Uh, you know, you don't have a warranty or anything, I guess, but you can go that route. But and in terms of overhead, I really mean that it's got software on it that you have to deal with. And for most people, including me, I just kind of want a big bucket of storage. And that's sort of been my feeling on Synology's for a while now, but not not everybody agrees with me. Yeah, see, I guess from the flip side of that, the you know the argument for the Mac Mini that I would make is, look at the difference in price. I mean, you're not you don't need to really soup up a Mac Mini much if you're going to use it in this role. But then if you're a Mac Power user and you've bought in and you're using you know things like Hazel and automation, how convenient it is to be able to drive that stuff off the the brain for this bucket of storage. Um, mm-hmm. I would, I, I'm not in the market for either, but if I was going to do it, I would, I would do it with a Mac mini, but no, I, I think it's a good point in the, in the forums. And if Synology, 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 if Synology does it for you, you should be careful. <laughs> a lot of people get into that cult and then they're never the same again, but, but you know, if it does it for you, then go for it. <laughs> just, just don't, just don't bring me in. That's all. There you go. Um, and there are a couple of iOS apps that make accessing data on a Synology or on a Mac Mini uh, easier. And so uh, one that I use is called FE File Explorer Pro. That's kind of a terrible name, but this is really clever. So you can go in there and connect to a bunch of different types of servers and exposes them in the Files app in iOS. And so your Mac Mini or your Synology or your Drobo or whatever becomes a file provider in iOS, which is really awesome if you are using that to store a bunch of documents that you need on your iPad or iPhone. Uh, the other one is uh, Document 6 by Riedel, which is like, this is one of these apps, there's kind of nothing documents can't do. It seems like it can play video. It has all the stuff built into it. And you can also use it to connect to a home or, or or office server. So you have some options there if you have data on a Mac to get it onto an iOS device. Yeah, I, I, one of the points that reminded me, one of the points I didn't make earlier, of the reason why I went from the network storage to this new you know, Velcro under the desk system is that I set up the old system thinking that the whole family would use the storage. Mm-hmm. And in and years of having this operational, including me showing people how it worked, you know, I, I am that dad who said, okay, look what we got. Now this is what you can do. Nobody ever used it. I had folders for each one of my family members. Yeah. And there was zero activity <laughs> in it in like three years. I mean, just nothing. No, thanks. No one has, uh, has done that for me either. Like no one yeah. ever touched yeah. the Drobo. No one ever logged <laughs> yeah. into it. It's yeah. like, well, I set all this sharing up and. Uh, so, so now I still have these external SSDs shared on my network, really, so I can get to them from my iPad or, or laptop if I'm in the house and need to do something. But it's it's nice to have some some options there. And I think one of these missing pieces for a lot of people is, well, like how well how do I get these onto my iOS device? Am I going to have to like log in with screens and copy them to a Dropbox folder or something? Like it's actually much simpler than that. If you check out one of these apps and spend a little time getting everything set up. 
One other question for you. When Now that you've kind of strayed away from Drobo, does that affect your uh, your remote backup situation for the rest of your family members at all? So it, my wife's MacBook Air was backing up to the Drobo. And so I did end up getting her just like a two terabyte USB hard drive off Amazon. And so that's just now plugged in uh, to her LG Ultrafine display and just tucked up under her desk. So she's not getting backed up when the machine is not at her desk. But the reality is her MacBook Air is basically a desktop replacement. She doesn't use it away from her display very often. So again, I feel like that was an acceptable uh, change as far as uh, data management. But you were smart to plug it into, so you got her a, a monitor that has a USB port. So yes, when she plugs into the monitor, it just necessarily attaches mm-hmm. to the drive. Uh, I, I yeah, think- she's got that, that LG Ultrafine they sell in the Apple store. And so it's a single USB-C cable to the MacBook Air, charges it, drives the display, and mounts her external drive. Yeah, I think it's a real challenge for family members that aren't into this stuff. Uh, just just hand them a drive and say, plug it in once in a while. Um, I know it's not going to happen. It, yeah, like I do that for my wife's computer, and then I see that it's been like three months since the last time mm-hmm. it was plugged in. And then, so that that's a challenge. I think plugging into the monitor was real smart. The, the way I handled that was we still have, even though I'm running the Eros and I love the, the Wi Fi with them, I still am running the old um, time capsule, not as a Wi Fi router, but just as a backup device. And that's working okay. But eventually that's going to die, and then I'm going to have to figure something out. Yeah, there's always something. I mean, you could share one of the drives off your iMac and because uh, you can do time machine sharing from Mac OS now. It used to be yeah. like a Mac OS server thing. So you you have some options when that thing finally uh, goes up in smoke. So at, at some point, I'm just going to have like a rack of small drives under my mm-hmm. desk. <laughs> it's going to yeah, be like... And then in like three years, you're like, what if I got one big box to put all these in? And the cycle <laughs> will begin again. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, man. You know me too well. Yeah. Uh, One last thing before we move on from the storage conversation is um, Simon wrote in with some good feedback. Uh, We were talking about how you back up something like a Synology, and that can be more difficult than backing up a Mac Mini or an external hard drive hanging off a Mac. And uh, I'll put this in the show notes, but Synology has an app on on their products called CloudSync. And basically what this does is it acts like a a cloud backup client. It runs on the Synology, and you can basically send data from the Synology to uh, Amazon Drive, uh, AWS, so that includes like Glacier for like long-term storage, Backblaze B2, which is uh, similar to Backblaze's like backup app, but it's just basically raw storage. You can just send data over there. Uh, and, and a few others. It's in the show notes if you're interested. But you, you can get stuff off of Synology, but I still maintain that I think having a Mac do this stuff is still easier for most people. And at least for me, the way that I want to work, I don't want to deal with a Synology. And, you know, that's just a, a matter of personal taste, I think, which is totally fine if you agree or disagree. But it's uh, it's not as bad as, as it may seem to get data off one of those things. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by our friends at 1Password. Uh, and a feature of 1Password that I've been spending some time with recently is Watchtower. So this is just in the app and it Watchtower is like your I'm trying to think how to say it. It's like it's like uh your bodyguard on the internet. So Watchguard is there monitoring your passwords for a couple of different things. It can tell you simple things like, oh, you've got some duplicate passwords, which of course we know is not good. You need unique, strong passwords for everything. 
but it also monitors your passwords and your data in these really big security breaches. So in uh, in January, 773 million records were added to Watchtower's database. That's a number that I can barely comprehend. And it means that chances are we all have stuff in this. And so what Watchtower does is it will alert you, say, hey, that uh, that pa- that password you were using over there, that's in this data breach. And so you, it's probably good to go change that. So you don't have to go out and like try to find where this these data, data breaches all get posted online, right? You, you don't have to go like search for your stuff in there. One password, which you're already running, can be proactive for you and protect your data uh, and give you alerts when you need to, to act. And that is just incredible to me. One uh, password, of course, comes in versions for families and teams. So you can make sure that everyone you work with or everyone in your household has the same protection you do. And it works across a wide range of browsers with that, that shortcut that is wired into my right hand, command plus backslash. Agile Bits, the developers one password, are always on top of the latest technology. So they're always keeping an eye out for things to add to Watchtower, but they're also keeping up with the tech on all of these platforms. So they use things like Face ID and the iOS password keyboard now in iOS 12 to make sure that their app is as integrated as possible into the systems you use every day. Head over to onepassword.com slash MPU to learn more and to sign up for a free 30-day trial. When you do sign up, you'll get 20% off. That's onepassword.com slash MPU for a free 30-day trial and 20% off. My thanks to One Password for their support of the Mac Power users. So uh, we talked about G Suite since uh, since you've joined the show and got some feedback on that. One of the questions I had asked during that show, and I it was an open question I didn't really know the answer to, was while... Uh, G Suite does not feed you ads if you pay for it. Is do they still read your data to add to their, you know, presumably anonymized data to add to their Google machine to make better ads for other people? So we heard from listener Greg who looked it up, and in the terms of service for the G Suite account, it says, notwithstanding any other term of the agreement. Google will not process customer data for advertising purpose or serve advertising in the services. I'm a lawyer. I'm not even sure what that means, man. <laughs> I was going to ask you, I was like, so what does it mean? <laughs> well, it says they won't process your data. So that's a good sign. But I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like at some point, I didn't really research it any further than what Greg sent in. But I don't really feel that I still have the answer to the question. <laughs> so <laughs> I guess we'll find out. The good, the, I guess the good news for us that are concerned about stuff like this is that with the increasing number of privacy laws that are gonna that are coming into effect and are being talked about, I think they're going to have to give us better answers going forward. I think so too. A lot of the things in things like GDPR and what could be coming to the U.S. in the future is about making this understandable. So like, you know, what is happening with your data and that's good. That's good for everybody, right? Not just uh, people with law degrees who struggle through these things. Yeah. I, you know, I will say though, I don't want to come off as one of those guys who is paranoid about Google. I mean, I, I think that they, they have some great services and there's some stuff they do. That's great. And if you use them, I'm not telling you you're making a mistake. I just think that the thing I want for the listeners of this show is that they're going in with open eyes. That's all. Mm-hmm. 
And and if you're going with open eyes and you say it's worth it, you know, I want I want Gmail is awesome and I don't care, you know, to the extent they're using my stuff to feed up ads, then I think you're okay. I, I don't I don't think there's a secret person in Google just reading every email that you send through. I, I you know, I don't you know, you you hear some nutty ideas about Google out there. I don't think it's that bad, but um, at the same time, I think there's a lot of people that don't have open eyes who just jump in. I think that's a really good summation of it. And I think that to a degree, it's a personal decision, right? So like for me in my business, Google Suite, G Suite, Google Apps, whatever it's called this week, it is the best set of tools for how we work and what we need. And so we've made that decision. We've made that trade-off to say these issues with Google are worth the price of admission. But that may not be true for everybody, and it may not be true for all businesses. And and that's where alternatives come in. So we spoke about the big ones on that episode, uh, but Tim and the forums sent in uh, some, some other kind of, I don't want to say necessarily less well-known, but maybe less well-used alternatives, starting with Dropbox Papers. This has been around a while, and it's it's kind of like Google Docs, right? So you have a Word, uh, I almost said a Word document. <laughs> you have a uh, a document where you can share it. You can do real-time collaboration. You can leave comments. Uh, it works on iOS, I think, better than Google Docs, actually. It supports Markdown, which is awesome if you use that like I do. But for me, so I tried this when Dropbox Paper first came out. And I had some like really bad sync issues early on, and I kind of haven't looked at it again. And that coupled with all my work is already happening in Google Docs and Google Sheets. Like I just, I don't feel the need to explore this, but if you want something like this and don't want Google Docs or Google Docs, you know, you're unhappy with how it works on iOS, which everyone should be. I actually think it's a, it's come a long way. I spent some time with it leading up to this episode and it's way better than it was when I checked it out last time. And if you have a Dropbox account, it just comes with it, which is really cool. Yeah, another one that was suggested was Quip, and Quip is really similar to Google Docs, um, in some ways better. Definitely a better iOS application, and uh, and it's free to use unless you add several members. I think it's thirty dollars per month for a team of five. You had researched that, I think. Yeah, um, uh, they've been purchased by Salesforce, so once again, you know, big data is getting involved, um, but. It's a great app. Uh, Rose and I use it to run the automators. I just, you know, because I'm a nerd, I have three different podcasts. Um, Focused runs on Apple Notes. Hmm. Uh, automators runs on, on Quip and Mac Power Users runs on Google Docs. And I kind of like having my hands in all of them so I can see, you know, wh- where they're getting better and getting worse over time. Mm-hmm. But the, uh, yeah, Quip is fine. And, and if you're, if you're not in the Google system, uh, not into it, uh, this is a great alternative. Another good alternative is Airtable, which is it's like part spreadsheet, part database. Like both of those words sort of lack the nuance to describe what Airtable is. But if you need structured data on the web so people can access it and, and you can, again, do this collaboration in real time, Airtable's kind of the only game in town, at least I think the best game in town. It is really powerful. So you can go in and they've got templates you can use to kind of get you to where you need to be. Or you can just start with a with a, kind of a blank spreadsheet and build a custom spreadsheet slash database with their tools. And for something like I was describing our invoice tracking system, 
again, it's in Google Sheets because that's kind of where everything else is. But I could have easily done it as something like Airtable with probably less work, honestly, because a lot of these types of features, these calculations and this relational stuff that I'm doing there is sort of more native to Airtable in a way. So it's, uh, it's a really powerful tool. And if Google Sheets, I would say if Google Sheets can't do everything you need it to do, Airtable's, I think, what to graduate to past that. I would almost guarantee that if you did Mega Sheet, isn't that what you call it? Something like that? Yeah, Mega Sheet. If you did Mega Sheet <laughs> in Airtable, it would be better. I just almost guaranteed. I've got really into Airtable the last six months. I'm using it for pieces of the law practice and pieces of Max Sparky. As I'm trying to get other people to help me out, having that stuff on the web is great. Um, I'm, I've got uh, someone helping me with some of the production stuff on the next field guide, and we're going to have an Airtable we share for status of different, you know, post-production things and it, it, it's great and you can get in there for free and really use a lot out of it if you want to go all the way down the road and in fact if you listen to the episode of automators on zapier we talked about Airtable in that one it's just um you know because it combines so well with zapier like i'm working on an Airtable automation right now when i onboard a new client that will um automatically add them to the billing system and you know just do a whole bunch of stuff and it all starts with an Airtable entry so uh, yeah, that is something I almost think there's a show in that. Maybe we'll someday we'll come and talk about this kind of stuff because it's there's just a lot more to it than we're talking about right now. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned it's free to start with. And, you know, I think this is one of the services that a lot of people could just probably just hang out in the free version for a really long time. But if you need more tools, it's like $10 a month per user or $20 a month per user if you need a lot more features. But something that you can grow, it can grow with you as you need more things, where as opposed to like some of these things, like in the past, say something like FileMaker, which is kind of like this in a way, but kind of very not like this in a way, was way more expensive and sort of difficult to start with. Or Airtable, I think that where they really win is that it's actually like pretty easy to get started. And you don't have to think that you're some sort of like database developer to build something useful with its tools. Yeah, and I'm I'm still well within the bounds of the free uh, mm-hmm. tier, and I'm getting tons of use out of it with two small businesses. Yeah, I want to hear more about that at some point. Uh, lastly, we have Evernote, which is uh, kind of been in the, in the news in our circles a little bit. Federico Vitici over at Mac Stories uh, has spent some time reconsidering and, and actually using Evernote again. Uh, obviously has a long history on this show that I'm sure everyone is aware of, but... I would say that that Evernote is an alternative in this arena for its collaboration. If you have documents or, you know, sort of shared knowledge you need to have between team members, but it doesn't have the functionality of something like Google Sheets, let alone Airtable. This is more maybe static data or simple text-based data. It has the sharing built in, right? You have work chat, so you can message each other about work. It's all there. It's still there. Evernote's still there. And uh, I had not even considered it as an alternative because I haven't thought about Evernote in a really long time until Federico rediscovered it. But a lot of people are still there, and it seems like the, the product is a lot better than it has been in the last couple of years. You're even using it again, aren't you? Shh, we're going to talk about that later. Later. I don't know it's what it teaser. is about the Mac teaser. Power User co-hosts and Evernote. You guys aren't going to get me there. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a bit, I guess. <laughs> but it's there too. So I guess, I guess the headline is 
is there are a lot of options here, right, beyond Google. I mean, we didn't even mention, so, you know, you, you were talking about the different ways you do podcast notes. I'm a guest host on a show in a couple of weeks, and when they emailed me, they said, oh, we'll just send you a link to a Pages document. I was like, oh, yeah, Pages has sharing and collaboration, kind of. Like, lots of these things do it. Microsoft Office does it as well. But uh, I think the tools that are better at this are still kind of online first, you know, where Pages and Office may struggle a little bit more than something like Google Docs or Airtable that was like kind of built for the web from day one. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Luna Display. They are the makers of the only hardware solution that turns your iPad into a wireless display for your Mac. And that means you'll have a second display that's super portable with basically zero lag and gorgeous image quality. The Luna Display is just a little little red thing that plugs into the back of your Mac. And then you put an app on your iPad and that's the experience. Then you just run the app and you've got an external display that works right off your Mac. It's amazing. Uh, It gives you extra screen real estate, which can always, always be useful. Not only do I use this thing sitting next to my Mac while I'm sitting here, I also use it, you know, I'll just take the the uh, iPad downstairs and use my pencil and my iPad keyboard to be working off my Mac. It's it's a way that you can get remote even when you don't own a laptop like me. Um, uh, you know, setting up these extra screens is always fiddly, but Luna Display just makes it easy. You plug in the hardware and you're good to go. Uh, and it all works over Wi-Fi. Uh, so another way I like using it is if you travel. You know, if you've got a laptop and you bring the, an iPad with you, then suddenly you have two displays in your hotel room. Luna Display is a complete extension of your Mac. It supports external keyboards as well as Apple Pencil and touch interfaces. It basically turns your Mac into a touchscreen device. And the all-new Liquid Video Display Engine significantly reduces latency, and it's a faster screen refresh rate. So listeners of Mac Power users can get an exclusive 10% off Luna Display. Just go to lunadisplay.com and enter the promo code POWER, P-O-W-E-R, at checkout. That's lunadisplay.com and promo code POWER at checkout. Out. Go there now, upgrade your setup. You're going to love it. Lunadisplay.com, promo code POWER, power, and get 10% off. Our thanks to Luna Display for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about the Apple Watch, sort of as a as a mini topic. Yeah, okay. Okay. Because I, I heard I heard a rumor about you and the Apple Watch, and I, I oh. feel like we need an intervention. <laughs> Well, maybe. So a little history. I bought the original Apple Watch. I now have the Series 4, which is the the current one with the bigger screen. And I've basically worn it pretty consistently since it first came out. And I, like everybody else, had the sort of struggle with it early on, trying to figure out what it was for. And the first hardware was really slow. Like, I actually picked up my original Apple Watch not too long ago. I was like, man, this thing is so nice. Like, I remember when it, when it came out, how amazing the hardware was. And then I remembered, oh, yeah, it took 18 minutes to start up. Like, it was just so slow. The Series 4 has solved most of that. But I'm running into some sort of, I don't know what it is. But over the last month or so, I have been primarily not wearing it and really only wearing the Apple Watch during uh, – or you know, during a workout. So like this morning I was at the gym and I wore the Apple watch to the gym and then came home and put it on my nightstand and put my other watch on. And it's not even necessarily about the other watch. It's not about that. I love the way it looks. So I want to feel fancy, even though both of those are true. 
it's just I, I've crossed some sort of threshold where I don't want the technology that close to me right now. And I'm curious if you ever have seasons like that or if I've just, you know, gone off the deep end. Um, I think you're going off the deep end, brother. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, you're invested in this Apple tech. I mean, I don't know. I, I Every time I hear all the whining about the Apple Watch being an interruption in their life, it's like that was true even when it first launched. All of sure. those notifications are customizable. So, I mean, yes. I, I don't look, I don't care if, if you really want to go and be like Mr. Hurley and have a fancy watch, go for it. Yeah. And I get that you just look at it and it always has the time on. I mean, the one downside with the Apple watch is that small delay when you twist your which, wrist, which you feels know. like they could fix it at any point, right? Like the series five could do that. The next version of the software could do that. It's like, that's a, a leg to stand on for now, but I don't think it's one to stand on forever. I, I, to me, I, the flip side of it is to me, I get so much more out of an Apple watch than I have ever got out of a normal watch. And I, I wore a analog watch most of my life. You know, I've always been a watch guy. When I was in high school, they had calculator watches. I did not go there. I was just uh, like, I have I, one now. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I, I, I like the, I like the analog. I know how to read analog time. I can look at hands. It's great. And initially when I got the Apple watch, I, I had it on the analog face because that's what I was comfortable with. But now, um, I'm using that Siri watch face. I love that. There's so much information available to me off my wrist. I have this gigantic phone that I don't want to be yanking out of my pocket all the time. And I get most of the information I need off my wrist. Um, I, because I block schedule, I can look at it and see what, you know, what's on deck for me coming up through the afternoon, uh, when people text me or even like when you send me a message through Slack, I get a notification. I mean, it's a small number of people, but the people that do get through, I get it immediately off my wrist. I do miss some of that. And I have felt a couple of times like, oh, I definitely should have seen this earlier, you know, and I would yeah. have to your point if the watch had been present, but at the same time, like nothing's burned down. So like a, a, an example, I was on Vacation last week with my family out of town, and Apple announced the WWDC dates. And I kind of figured that that's when they were going to do it. It's the week they did it the year before. And I knew that if it happened, you know, my phone was going to be in my pocket. I'm out with the family. And so I told Mike, I was like, okay, if you text me and I haven't answered in like 10 minutes, I need you to call me because, you know, I'm going to ignore a text message in my pocket, but if the phone rings, I'm always going to look and see who it is. And sure enough, we were at this children's museum and my kids are running around, you know, learning about robotics and the four-year-old is like climbing up this thing and the phone rings and Mike says, oh, they announced the dates. And, you know, so I had, I had an email already drafted for our theater, so I had to send that off real quick, do a couple little things. And that was a situation where, like, that could have gone badly, but I planned ahead. as like, I need you to call. So, like, that will get my attention. And so I'm still kind of working that out where where this fits with all of this. But and, and it may be a phase or it may be something that, you know, I've turned a corner with it and I, and I don't wear it anymore. I will keep you informed. But it's just something that's kind of been going on in my life over the last month or so. I'm not even sure what really started it, but something that came up. Uh, on Twitter uh, from Rob was, uh, you know, what would it be like if Apple had, he says a bracelet or a ring. So, you know, I kind of think like a, a bracelet probably that ties into activity and I will extend this to workouts. So like what if Apple basically made a Fitbit, but tied in with workouts and activities, so you could still wear a watch, but then just have something at the gym 
that would be cheaper than a full Apple Watch just for tracking your activity. Like that is really interesting to me because I, the reason I still wear it at the gym or when I go for a bike ride is I want that data. I want to participate in like the activity and workout stuff, but not enough in my everyday life to wear it every single day. And so I'm kind of in this middle ground. I don't know if Apple would ever do a device like this, but I think it would be kind of cool, especially if it's cheaper than the Apple Watch to say, hey, get your health and activity stuff through this little thing. You just wear it. You charge it once a week because it doesn't have a screen. Maybe even like maybe it's really simple, but that would be really cool for me where I am now. And I guess we'll just see how I feel about this in the future. But as of right now, it's kind of kind of where I am, to be honest. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, Cal Newport has a new book out about, you know, putting yourself basically on a social media diet and and disconnecting more. And that's a real movement, and I totally get it. But I guess in my mind, the Apple Watch for me actually kind of helps me disconnect with limits. And and I'm really good at being brutal on notifications. I don't get much on my wrist, but I do like it. And to me, between the, the notifications that matter, uh, the health stuff, which I use every day, and the... Um, uh, the the calendar blocking, the ability to add a task to OmniFocus with just a tap on my wrist. It's just there's it's just a combination of little things that I would definitely miss. And so so I I really am a big fan. And and you couldn't get me to put on a watch that doesn't give me all that functionality at this point. And, and Mike was giving me a hard time about it because he got me to buy some fancy pins. He's like, oh, you're in the fancy pin club. Next, you'll be in the fancy watch club. And I'm like, no, I I won't. <laughs> It's a much more expensive club. Yeah, so uh, I'm just not interested. I like the functionality yeah. of Apple Watch. And maybe it's a because I grew up using, you know, old-timey watches. Mm-hmm. And just like the same reason why I don't understand why anybody would buy vinyl when I used to have to use vinyl records and all the problems they had. I still remember melting my Miles Davis record when I was like 12 <laughs> and being very sad. Put a desk light over it, and I was sitting here doing homework, and then I saw this black stuff dripping on my homework because the record player was on the top of my desk <laughs> it was miles davis wow. slowly dying on my homework man <laughs> that's that makes me really sad for a young david like oh, oh it was i mean because we didn't have any money so my it was like my parents were just gonna go buy me a new right. kind of blue you know yeah man that's that was the best album too anyway i'm sorry we had to bring that up today <laughs> man i'm hurting now i'm hurting <laughs> anyway uh, <laughs> let us know but I, I the other thing i would say is if you're feeling weird about the watches why don't you try scaling back what the watch does you know maybe yeah if it's an interruption you know get serious about the notifications and and then turning a bunch of them off i don't know i think that's good advice oh man miles miles oh, i'm so sorry i didn't mean to bring up a painful memory let's let's wipe that memory away though with stuff that we're currently playing with guess what steven i'm back in apple notes oh come on <laughs> I yeah I played with Bear for a couple months and um, it's just I don't really care for the way it displays the text with all the markdown um, syntax. I I don't need all the H ones in my you know and all that stuff. And yeah, I agree with you. I think I just you know at the end of the day, it just this was one of the things where I I wasn't getting enough benefit out of it. Bear is a great notes app, especially if you want to be automation friendly. I make a podcast called the automators, but I found even with all those tools, I wasn't writing any automation for bear mm-hmm. and Apple notes is just everywhere. And it's so easy to get stuff in there. It's one of those things where the first party app makes a lot of sense because I have a bunch of shared notes. I had to use Apple notes anyway. So, you know, I just decided heck with it. 
and I and I reestablished my notes database and I'm good to go. Until, you know, the next thing. I was I was talking to Terpstra and he's got some things he's planning I'm not allowed to mm-hmm. talk about. And I'm like, oh great, you're gonna throw me into another <laughs> existential crisis. That's all I'll say. Uh, it happens. It happens yeah. sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I've been in Apple Notes for a long time and but you, you can get the edge to explore sometimes, right? And I do agree with you about Bear. I I don't necessarily need to see all the I don't even know what you would call it, like the exposed markdown or something. Like I, I understand what's happening in Markdown. I don't I don't need helper there. I wish you could turn it off. Uh for me though, though, the biggest thing with Bear is that I'm not a tagger. Like I want yeah. folders and subfolders and Bear is built all around tagging. And if that's how you work, that's awesome. But if you're like me, like I just anything with ta- I use tags nowhere, like not in Finder, not OmniFocus, not anywhere. And uh, so for me, that's sort of the the big issue with Bear. The the other thing that's really changed for me is my use for an app like Apple Notes has evolved. Where in the old days with NV Alt, it was always pure text. I have come to appreciate the ability to drop in links and pictures and other things. It, it is my version of Evernote, you know, mm-hmm. and um, like. You know, we're getting ready. We're redoing um, some stuff in our bedroom. You know, we've been married 25 years. We've never owned an actual bed frame. (laughs) You know, we we had like this, well, we have a frame with wheels on, but there's no headboard attached to it. It's Mm -hmm. like when we were married, we were broke and we we took somebody gave this to us. And then over the years, we bought two or three beds for the kids. And, you know, but you always, your your own stuff is the last thing you ever worry about. So we decided 25 years, let's get a headboard. (laughs) So so we're doing some stuff like that. But I, you know, I want to drag pictures and things into a note and Apple notes just makes it really easy to do that stuff. Maybe that's, I give Evernote a hard time, but I've actually kind of reverted to a version of Evernote with Apple notes. Mm -hmm. It is nice to have images and PDFs and all that kind of intermix. I do a lot of that in Apple notes. Um, The other thing I'm playing with is uh, exposure to Mike Hurley and, um, and Mike Schmitz for that matter has cost me money again. Mm-hmm. And when we they do that, when we were in Chicago, they were both bragging about these new mics they bought that they just love. And and I'm also playing more saxophone. I have a band now. I'm going to have to explain that at some point. But, yes. But I'm recording. <laughs> um, I'll just leave that a pin in that one. But I, I'm recording myself on an instrument as well as my voice. And I wanted to get a mic that was kind of more versatile for that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But I didn't want to necessarily go spend a lot of money. Well, I did spend a lot of money, but I didn't want to go spend <laughs> the kind of money that you spend on like a ribbon mic for a saxophone. So, right. so either way, I, I upgraded my my one and only mic, which is mm-hmm. now a, I don't know, I think it's Neumann, the way you say yes. it. Yes. It's a Neumann 105. And I don't know if you can tell my dulcet tones have been better the last couple episodes, but that's why. It's a great microphone. It is... If I were to upgrade from what I'm using, this is what I would go to. I like the way this sounds, and it is um it's a great choice. I think especially for the money. Like it is expensive, but like you said, it's not it's not like expensive with a capital E, I guess. Like well, it's it not, was six hundred dollars, so it cost yeah, me a lot. But the, it's uh, expensive. But it's not it's not four figures. You can spend four yeah. figures on a microphone easily when you're talking about especially like instrumentation and that sort of thing. Yeah. But it's uh, it does a great job, and you do sound really good. I, I noticed um, that. Well, actually, you sent me some test samples. Yeah, when I when I got it, I, I bought it on Amazon. I was thinking, mm-hmm. okay, return period. So I I did some samples for Stephen, and the first thing I noticed with his mic is that the gain is much lower on my um, my preamp. 
mm-hmm. because it's that's just better that way, which means I think it just make, that's one of the reasons why it sounds better. Yeah, it, it does a great job. And you sound awesome. And uh, we definitely need to hear about this band. I want to hear about how you're recording. We've got to talk all, all about that soon. Yeah, maybe so. the next feedback show. Maybe okay. we'll have yeah. something we can share by then. Yes, some sweet jams. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what about you? Okay, I'm going to start with the my microphone situation. Uh, Not for podcasting, but I was using uh, a, a Rode microphone for my YouTube videos, but I wasn't really happy with it. I was getting a lot of background noise, and it was hard to get the uh, just get the levels where I wanted them. And so, uh, a friend of mine had recommended the Rode Video Mic Pro Plus. Uh, the Rode Video Mic is a different thing. The Rode Video Mic Pro Plus, which you're looking, which you're looking for, I've got it in the show notes. And uh, the Dog Cow video, which I put up uh, a little while ago, it's the first microphone I've u- first video I've used this microphone on, and I was super pleased with how it sounded. This microphone has a lot of really clever things about it. It's still battery powered. It actually comes with a rechargeable battery, but you can put double A's in it. But it senses when the camera comes on and then turns itself on when the camera comes on and turns itself off when the camera turns off. A bunch of these other microphones don't do that. They just have their own little power switch. And I can't tell you how many times I recorded something just to find out that I hadn't turned the mic on. So you got, you got the, the crappy internal microphone on your camera. Yes, yeah. which is unusable. Yeah. Or I would, most of the times when I shoot a video, I don't clean up until the next day because sometimes I need to go back and do like little pickup stuff here and there. And I can't tell you how many times I'd come in the next day in the office and the microphone was just on all night long, just burning, you know, double uh, yeah. A batteries to the ground. So I'm really happy with this. The thing that really makes me excited about it, though, is it has some really nice features around recording levels. So it can record kind of like the bass volume level, but then it also can go uh, drop like 10 dB and it can actually record both at the same time. So the problem I have is when I speak, I just the way I naturally talk, I have a lot of range and volume. So I go from pretty quiet to getting pretty loud, and that can be really easy to overdrive a microphone. Now, when I record podcast, I have everything dialed in to account for this. But with video, I don't have as many good options, and this microphone gives me more headroom there. So I was really pleased with it, and uh, way better than what I was using, which isn't even worth mentioning what I was using because I'm just so happy with this. So if you're doing video stuff, uh, this is a pretty reasonable microphone at like 300 bucks. Again, you can spend a lot more. You can also spend a lot less. But so far, I'm really pleased with it. Good. Good. Yeah. yeah. I've, I've always struggled with sound in my videos, which is weird since I do audio for a living. But there's so many more factors with oh, it's, video, like it's so hard. I mean, if you look at a bunch of the YouTube videos I do, I've actually got my podcast mic jammed into the frame because mm-hmm. that's the only way I could get decent yeah. audio. <laughs> yeah, and and that just the voice, the videos I do that are pure voiceover. I've done several of those that I record on my podcast rig. But videos that I'm on camera, which is most of them now, the way that I want to shoot it, that just doesn't work. And so I'm using the shotgun mic. I've used uh, clip-on lav mics before, which I don't like the way they sound. And I've got a pretty decent setup that I borrowed from somebody. I borrowed this from a friend like a year ago. I should probably give it back now that I actually think about it. But um, a shotgun mic kind of gives me the flexibility I want there. So I've been really happy with that. Um, While while we're speaking about Mike Hurley, though, I have some more Mike (laughs) Hurley blame. Oh, no. Oh, no. Wait, I just saw this in the show notes. Okay, you got to tell us about this, Stephen. 
So I have when, <clears throat> let me back up a little bit. In 2015, when I quit my job, for the first three or four months, I did pretty robust time tracking to understand where my time was going when I was starting out. And I got to the end of 2015 or maybe the beginning of 20, 2016, and I thought, I have a handle on this. I don't need this anymore. Really, since really since starting Mac Power Users, a lot of things in my schedule that were very stable for a couple of years kind of got upended. I ended a couple of projects. I joined this show and I felt I realized I didn't really have a good grasp on how much time I was spending on different things. And you're, you're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah, it's <laughs> uh, it's a good problem to have. Like it's not me complaining. I'm glad to be busy. I needed a better handle on it to to make decisions. Right, like yeah. when you're self employed or even if you just have a side project, you need to have good data to make good decisions. And for me, where I am was I needed to reimplement time tracking. And Mike and I were speaking about this, about my general feeling of overwhelmingness. And he was like, well, how much are you actually working? And I was like, I don't know. And so uh, I have reactivated my account with Toggle, T-O-G-G-L, which is kind of a funny name, but really nice time tracking software. It runs on the web, runs on the Mac, runs on iOS. There's a really nice iOS uh, app that's coming out in the in the coming month or so, I think, that is a toggle client. It's way better than the than the built-in or than the first party client, uh, which I'll share when that comes public. I'll, I'll be sure to put that in, a sh- in the show notes somewhere. But there was a time when when workflow was like a thing all of the, the super nerds had in beta for like a long time. And we all kept mentioning it on podcasts, but not really explaining it. I feel like that's what we're doing with this toggle app. We're, mm-hmm. we're all doing this. And everybody out there is like, well, when can I get it? And you keep thinking it's soon, but who knows when. But yeah, at, at but, some point. Yeah, but so on the Mac, I ha- I'm running toggle. Actually, I made a Fluid app, so I get, like the one app browser thing. Sure. Um, and so I'm running it right now. And I've been working on Mac Power Users now uh, for an hour and 21 minutes. So it is been extremely useful to understand how I'm spending my time. I'm just time tracking for work, not for everything. Like I'm not CGP graying it and tracking how much time I sleep and how much time I eat, but just during the workday, where's my time going? And already even a couple weeks in, I'm learning a lot that I didn't expect. One piece of advice I'd give you is don't make too many categories. I think a mistake when people get started with this stuff is they make too many categories. The other thing is I would be tempted to give timing a try. I know they're occasional sponsor of the show, or I think they are occasional sponsor of the show, but I know they sponsor some of my shows, but it's the nice thing about that is it's automatic. So if you spend a lot of time on your Mac, you'd get better time with that. Yeah, it's, it's a good alternative. I kind of went with toggle because that's what I'd used before. Uh, sure. Timing is really good. I've used timing before as well, but um it's it's so far it's 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 really interesting. I mean, look, you could do this with like a pad of paper, right? You could just have a legal pad of paper on your desk and just make a note every time you change things. Uh, one thing I have discovered, though, and then we'll move on because I know people sometimes find time tracking to be a subject that's annoying. But one thing I've already noticed is I am much more likely to work in blocks now. Now I'm not full on block scheduler David Sparks, but in the past, I, I just n- knew this about myself that I would jump around between things. So especially sort of in like rough, like administrative time where I'm not recording or editing a podcast, but there's like, okay, there's other eight other things that need to get done today. I wouldn't necessarily group those in any sort of way. And now because I go and start a timer, it feels way more deliberate. Like this time I'm working on 
MPU or I'm working on liftoff or I'm blogging or whatever, and then I'm going to do that task until it's done, and I'm going to stop the timer and move on to something else. And I feel like that already has improved the way that I'm working. And that may seem really simple, but like I needed to apparently learn this lesson. And so it's been um, it's been a fun journey so far. And, uh, you know, if you if you ever feel like overwhelmed, if you, you know, if you've got the nine to five time tracking can be like a really interesting way to actually give you some data about uh, what you're doing. Yeah. Another point I would make on this is this doesn't have to be a lifetime commitment. Like I go through phases where I'm very deliberate about time tracking and mm-hmm. I use all the tools. And then I'll take a month or two off and then I'll do it again as like check-ins. And, um, and that's a good way to do it too. So you don't necessarily have to go at this 24 seven for the rest of your life. I think for some people, they feel overwhelmed. They're like, Oh, if I do that, I can never stop. But of course you can stop, you know, just, yeah, you can totally start and stop. And I think I'm going to do this probably maybe through the end of March is kind of what I've told myself and we'll see how things go. It's definitely not something that you've got to do all the time. That's a really good point, David. The other piece of the other thing, and now I'm getting into the stuff we're talking about on focused, uh, which I don't know if I've said on this show, but you know, free agents turn into focused and it's a really good show. Right? It is you, should really go, good show. you should go check it out if you haven't, but the um, it's a, for me, it's a great way to find stuff that I don't have to do anymore. When I track time, I'm like, Oh, wait a second. I spend like three hours a week on this and I could hire a person to do that thing for me. And um, it's a great way to kind of reclaim your life. And and the time tracking is where you find this, you know, the vulnerable spots you can get rid of. We're going all we're going all over the place today, man. Uh, there's a lot of stuff place. to talk about. Yeah, I mean, we can just skip over the Evernote thing. Yeah, let's say let's just tease, leave that out there. <laughs> no, I feel like I should say this. So, I mentioned Federico uh, had been using Evernote. He actually moved all of his stuff back into it from Apple Notes and Bear. I think he was kind of split between things. Yeah, and and talking with him. I don't have a, a desire to move out of Apple Notes, but something that he sort of talked about was Evernote can be more than just notes. You can use it as like a kind of a personal database, you know, like you can do something like Dev and Think. Yeah. Or keep it. Yeah. Keep it. There's lots of uh, solutions for this. Uh, for me, though, I have tried Dev and Think in the past, and it's just too much for what I need, too much overhead. Keep it is kind of the other way, like it's kind of too simple for what I want. Evernote was kind of in the middle. And what I wanted was a place to keep all of my Apple history stuff. So I've been writing about Apple history on my site, on iMore, on Mac Stories for years. And I'm running into situations where I go to start a column, and then in researching it, I realized that I wrote this column four years ago and had no memory of it. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, or I want to do a a YouTube video and I start doing research and like, this all seems really familiar. And then I realized I wrote about it three years ago and I could just turn that column into a video, you know, work on, on the script. Yeah. And so what I've been working on is pulling in all of these history articles into Evernote and with like full text. So it's all searchable. And I'm, I'm like, I've done all the Mac Stories ones and all the iMore ones. I'm sort of slowly going through my archives at 512 Pixels. I'm up to like 106 articles. Already, I can see things of like, oh, I've covered like A, B, and D. Now it's time to go back and cover C, right? Like kind of put the narrative together in an article or a video. And I'm really excited about it because it, it, it's giving me a way to surface all this past work that I've done. Because like, look, once a blog post is like off the front page, 
unless it just has really good SEO, like it's kind of over, right? Like some people search this stuff and like my goal is like if you search anything old Apple, like 512 pixels, like that should be the source you go to. And I'm slowly working on that, but I needed a way just to organize it better internally for me. And so I've got a, a notebook that has all these articles in it. I have a, a, a one other notebook that is I'm sort of using for research. So like I want to do something on the Apple three, for instance, and over the years, I've bookmarked things and sent things to Instapaper, and like they're all scattered everywhere about the Apple III. And now I'm sort of compiling all that into a note in Evernote. So when it's time to like, what am I going to write about this month or what video do I want to do? I have research notes for all these topics, and I can kind of pick one that looks like it's pretty far down the road. And uh, so far, it's only been a couple of weeks, but so far, I'm actually really liking it for this purpose. Again, I don't want to move fully into it, but having just a place where like Evernote is the Apple history stuff is that kind of cool actually. And, and it's fun to go back and read these old articles and like connect all these dots. So that's where I am with Evernote. Who knew in 2019 it would be on the dock of my Mac, but here we are. I think it's only appropriate that the uh, co-host of the Mac power users is using Evernote. <laughs> I, and I got a, I got a, it's in the contracts in the fine print you sent me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know. I, actually, I, I want to hear how that goes for you. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I'm open to, I, I've just never liked the way the app looked or worked. I mean, it, it's funny how sometimes an app just rubs you wrong and sure. And that one has always rubbed me wrong for whatever. And and then Apple Notes got good enough at the kind of stuff I was using Evernote for that then I really wasn't interested. But the, um, I mean, yeah, we'll see. Yeah. And don't we'll get me see. wrong. It's still buggy in places and like does weird things. And I'm actually using a shortcut from Federico that's actually better than like the Evernote Clipper at pulling in text and images. Like there's lots of work that needs to be done, but for really specific tasks, like it, it can be a unique solution. I could have used Keep It or DevonThink totally. DevonThink would actually be like really good at this, but uh, it's all DevonThink again. It's like, this does a thousand things. I need two things. And so yeah. Evernote was sort of the middle ground. And uh, yeah, I'll keep you posted. But so far, like it's proving useful already. So it'll probably stick around. All right. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Squarespace. Make your next move with Squarespace. It lets you easily create a website for your next idea, and you can get a unique domain name to go along with it and use one of their award-winning templates. So depending on the type of project you have, Squarespace can solve it in a bunch of different ways. Maybe you have an online store, or maybe you want to create a portfolio to show off your work, or maybe you want to be like David and write a really cool blog. Squarespace can do handle all that stuff and more. It's the all-in-one platform and that means there's nothing to install. There's no patches to worry about. There are no upgrades needed. You don't have to worry about that stuff because Squarespace has got you covered. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need any help. They allow you to quickly and easily grab a unique domain name. And all of those award-winning templates are beautifully designed to show off your great ideas. I recently had a friend who was starting a business and he needed a website and he texted me and said, Hey, what do I do? And I said, look, you just got to go to Squarespace. You know, this friend of mine, he's not a designer. He's not a developer. He just wants to get his idea, his company out into the world. And so we built a website for him complete with a contact form. Uh, this really nice embedded map thing of the, this, this deal they're doing. It all looks really good because Squarespace gives you all of those tools. And now he can go about building his business and not be worrying about becoming some sort of web admin in his spare time. 
Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com MPU. And when you decide to sign up, use the offer code MPU to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain name and to show your support for Mac Power users. Once again, that's squarespace.com MPU and that code MPU to get 10% off your first purchase. I'd like to thank Squarespace for their support. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. Hey, you know what else has happened since the since you came on the shows? We did our first live show in a long time. And um, during that show, I said we should talk at some point about all the gear you use to make that live show recording work. Yeah. And, and then we got a bunch of email from people saying, yeah, yeah, please do that. Yeah. So, <laughs> so here we are. Later is now, is what we're saying. Yeah. It's the time. There we go. The time has come. Uh, I think I kind of divided this into three sections. Uh the show prep was actually pretty normal. So you and I, we use Google. We have a Google Doc per episode. So you have this beautiful template. It's the best looking Google Doc I've ever been in. I, I decided if I was going to use Google Docs, I was not going to make it look ugly. It's really nice. And uh, so we create, we copy that template, and you know, each there's a there's a document for each episode. And normally there's like two or three or four docs in the folder because we work ep- episodes in advance. That was all pretty much as normal. So you and I are just going in in the weeks before the show, adding things here, rearranging things. We had Mike and Rose on, so we gave them access to the document so they could do things. All that was, I think, pretty normal. Like by the time we were in Chicago together, we pretty much knew what the show was going to be. There wasn't a lot of scrambling uh, like some live shows I've done of like, oh, what are we talking about? Like that, I think, was all pretty, pretty normal. Yeah. And, and, you know, and from the production standpoint, uh, my concern with that show was I wanted to make it uh, fun for the people that that showed up, but I also wanted to make it good content for the people that were at home. So that was that was the challenge and why we spent a lot of time trying to to figure that out. Yeah, that is always the challenge with live shows. So, you know, we're planning to do stuff at WWDC or, or elsewhere throughout the year. That's always the balance, right? You can do something funny in the room, but like, does it play? Uh, in audio, like if someone's just driving in, in around, traffic. Yeah. <laughs> can they can they understand what's happening? So that's a really good thing to be concerned about. And I think the hardest part of all of this Just while we're talking about show prep, just to close that loop, we do also use Google Sheets for this. So there is a massive Google Sheet that has every episode of MPU on it going way back in time. And it's the topics and the ads and like a little note section. And so we use that for planning future episodes. So before this before we started recording, we were talking about April and May. And so, hey, let's move this here. Let's do this guest here. And we need to follow up on this topic or whatever. It's just a really nice way for you and I both to kind of see what's going on and and make plans. Again, in a collaborative environment. We could do this in anything, but it's Google Sheets works well. Katie and I started that very early. And uh, I remember when we went over to 5x5, Five Five, they were like amazed by that. I think they ended up you know, using similar ideas. Mm-hmm. I think you guys had already got the idea by the time we joined Relay, but um, that was just a, a great platform. At the time we made it, it was really the only platform where we could have like a collaborative sheet. And um, it's, and, it's and now the, this Google Sheet is like a history lesson in Mac Power yeah. users, right? Like it, yeah. it goes way back. It's going to be in the uh, the museum, is what we're saying. The, the MPU museum. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I've when just they decided make that. that's a thing. Uh, right next to the right next to the jacket with all the patches on it. <laughs> no, I don't want to do that at all. We got a lot of comments, a lot of compliments, which meant the world to me that it sounded really good. And that's always, again, another challenge when you record live because 
you and I are recording right now. We're in our home offices, right? Like we have foam on the walls around us. We're speaking into nice microphones and nice interfaces. It's a very controlled environment. Unless my neighbor's dog is barking, uh, I have complete control of how this sounds. When you're live, though, you do not have that. You're on a stage. There's no acoustic foam. You're in a big open space. You have audience members who are making noise, clapping, laughing, heckling sometimes. No, we didn't have any hecklers. But um, there's a lot more v- – vari- many more variables to deal with. And and you you also have two microphones right next to each other and two yes. people speaking, which is – you know you don't want me to get on Steven's mic. It right. causes all sorts of trouble. Yeah, or as little as possible, really. And so – for the live shows, we use the Shure Beta 87A, which is a uh, you know XLR-based microphone. Uh, it's actually the microphone I use at home. So we're talking about your home setup. I use the 87A. It's a condenser microphone. Um, it's like 250 bucks, And I've used it for a couple of years now, and I really like it. It's, it's what I recommend to people who they already have a podcast and they want to make their first upgrade or their second upgrade. Do not think you have to buy this microphone to start a podcast. I promise you, you do not. But if you want to record something with nice quality, I think for bang for your buck, the the 87A is the best thing on the market. But um, yeah. we use those for a couple of reasons. And that's what I used up until a couple of weeks yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah, so you've moved now past me, and I will probably follow you later this year. But we use this for a few reasons. One, selfishly, because I'm in charge of live shows at Relay, I wanted to sound the same at home or on the road. So this is the microphone I use at home. It's the one I want to use on the road. And it was sort of like a – it was an investment to buy four of them, but an investment that we made a couple years ago and we've been really happy with. But the key here is that it's super cardioid. So what that means is that it has a very narrow pickup pattern. So if you think about the live show, David, you and I are sitting next to each other. It's still going to hear some of you on my mic and vice versa, but very little. And it's going to hear basically nothing of the audience, of things behind the microphone. And that is critical when recording live to get rid of that background noise. Because look, most of the time when Relay has a live podcast that's recorded live, it's not in a theater, right? It's like in someone's hotel room or someone's Airbnb at a conference or a trip or at Mike's bachelor party. We recorded some shows in my hotel room. Like... And in those environments, getting rid of as, as much background noise as possible will always lead to a better result. So that's why I went with the 87A, opposed to something like the the Shure Beta 58, which is what we used to use, and didn't do as good of a job at getting rid of that background noise. And these things really just kill it. And they're really the reason our live shows sound so good is because the microphones we're using are really high quality. Yeah. And then you've got a since it's XLR, you got to plug it into something. We do. So we are using the Sound Devices Mix Pre 6. There's links to all this stuff in the show notes. Again, you do not have to buy this to do a podcast in front of people, right? Like this is something that we've upgraded to over the years. And it lets me bring in four microphones. Actually, you can bring in six with like this additional thing uh, into this interface. So XLR microphones in and USB out to a computer. This whole thing actually is powered by USB-C. There's no power brick anywhere, unlike the system we used to use, just USB-C. What's really cool about this that is unique about it, there's very few devices that do this, is it can record onto an SD card and send audio out over USB. Most of these field recorders, like a bunch of the Zooms, which is what we used to use and some other things, they just record onto SD, 
And the only way to get audio out of it is through the headphone jack. It's not USB. And so there's a link in the show notes as well to Jason Snell at Six Colors writing about how he podcasts with an iPad, which is not something I recommend at this point because it's really fiddly. But the way his setup is basically my old setup. So you have multiple boxes to like get audio everywhere you need it to go, where the Mix Pre 6 can do it all at once. So it's recording onto the SD card onto um, uh, a track that has basically uh, each microphone separated out. So I can go in later and I can pick out David's microphone from my microphone. They're not mixed down together where the USB capture is just a backup at this point where if, if the SD card you know, goes up in smoke or something happens, I have it recorded on the laptop. And if we live stream these, which we did not do MPU, but we do some of our others, I'm also live streaming it from the laptop. And so I have a backup there as well. And I've been really happy with this. Chicago was actually the first time I've used this piece of gear on the road. And uh, I've, been, I've been really happy with it. And I get really clean recording because the microphones are good. The preamps in this device are really good. They could drive basically any microphone you could pair with it. And uh, and all that kind of goes in together to, to make a live show. Yeah, and you've got a, uh, a blog post over at 512pixels. Uh, was it 512pixels.net slash gear? Yes. Where you've got a listing of all the stuff you use. You know, I've got, I've got so many emails with people asking me to do that over the years. Um, I'm going to, you know, by the time this show goes up, if you go to maxbarkey.com slash gear, I think there'll be something there. Okay. I'm going to put it in the show. Put it, in the show it won't be as fancy, Steve, but now I've made a commitment. So now I'm just going to get it done because everybody's always asking me that. I just never get around to it. Okay. I'll do that this yeah, week. Yeah. I was the same thing. And so it's just a resource I can, I can send people. In fact, as we're recording this, it does not include the newest stuff, but it will be updated by the time. So it you goes have on. work to do too. Yeah, I do. <laughs> Good. You also got to put your your leather jacket up there. Oh gosh, uh, not, not doing that. So yeah, that, that's kind of where where I am with the the live stuff. And you know, we do an increasing number of these, and I travel around the country with all this in like a hard roller case, and it all works pretty well. And I've been I've been really happy with it. The the, the one interesting side I saw of Stephen at that live show, I don't think this was actually in the live show that published because we did it at the very end. Is as soon as we got done, I just I asked you on mic. I said, "Well, how come the the red button was never on the record yeah. button?" Yeah. And and the room broke out laughing, and you looked at me like you were going to murder me. <laughs> don't mess around. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be that guy who loses their live recording, <laughs> which is why I bought this interface, right? So I can record on the SD card and on the laptop. Yeah, that, that's a nice bit of gear that that it, makes... it is. And again, it's like professional stuff, but. Turns out I'm a professional audio guy now. It's one day it happened. Yeah. But um, one thing that, you know, when you think about this is the editing. So like what we've been talking about, there's a little bit of David on Steven's track and a little bit of Steven on David's track and Mike is on some of them. And that means you can't do a lot of the fine grain editing that I do normally on Mac Power Users. So like there have been a couple of times this episode where, you know, we interrupt each other or something. I clean all that up. But when you're live... You can't do that because if I cut you out of your microphone, but you hear me faintly, you hear yourself faintly on the other microphone, it's really weird when you listen to it, you know, the final version of it. And so you have to be really clean with your cuts. And basically, if someone cross talks or coughs, you have to cut the same three seconds out of every single track. So they still they still sound a little different. They sound live, 
but I think in a way that's kind of fun, actually. And, and they still sound good. Like my goal is for them to sound good. They're never going to sound the way they do if we're in our offices, but they sound that they're passable to listen to in a car or in AirPods. Um, but they sort of have that fun vibe. You can hear parts of the audience. Like there, there are parts in that episode where I actually brought up the sound of the crowd. You know, if someone's laughing or, or something, you know, bring that up a little bit. Or actually at the beginning when everyone like applauded, actually brought it down because it was kind of too loud. So there, there's still things you can you can do, but your your hands are tied a little bit by just the way that it works. But it's a fun challenge as an editor to to take something live and make a finished product out of it. I didn't even think of that. Did you have a mic on the crowd? Uh, I did not. So I've done that in the past, but uh, I did not this time. So what I used was most of the crowd interaction was before Mike or Rose were on stage, like when we did the hat giveaway and that stuff. Yeah. And so I used that microphone was recording the whole time. So I just used that track and brought the volume up and it was enough to kind of make it feel appropriate. Nice. nice. Well, it was great. And it, it, just as someone who really had no clue how to put that together, it was great showing up and asking Stephen where he wanted me to put the mm-hmm. cables. You know, I was <laughs> yeah. I was pure labor at that point, but that was great. Yeah. It was fun. And we should do it again. We are doing it again. Yeah, we are going to do it again in July at MaxDoc. So mm-hmm. go check that out. Um, all right. Well, there we go. We did our first feedback show together. We're going to awesome. get leather jackets, going to get matching jackets. I don't, I don't. I, I don't think I'm in for that. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right, gang. Uh, we're Mac Power Users. You can find us over at relay.fm slash MPU. Thank you to our sponsors, Omni Group, 1Password, Luna Display, and Squarespace. We will see you next week. Bye.